He's throwing haymakers on Boxing Day. The lead starts right now. Hours after a Christmas message about understanding and respect, President Trump unloads on Speaker Pelosi as the battle over the what, when, and how of a Senate trial continues. Information warfare. A new report details the military's plan to launch a counter-cyber attack if Russia messes with 2020 like it did four years ago. Plus, the buddy system on the day of a critical vote in Israel, how Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is trying to pull a Trump to hang on. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Erica Hill in today for Jake. And we begin with the politics lead. So much for that Christmas unity. Just hours after calling for a, quote, culture of deeper understanding and respect, the president spent the day on Twitter assailing Democrats, especially House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, calling her crazy and her district filthy. Mr. Trump is notably frustrated about Pelosi refusing to turn over the articles of impeachment to the Senate as both Republicans and Democrats negotiate possible rules for a trial. As CNN's Phil Mattingly reports, neither side seems to be budging as a crack is emerging in the red wall of Trump's GOP jurors in the Senate. In fairness, when I heard that, I was disturbed. A key Senate Republican voice expressing discomfort with the words and actions of Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell on impeachment. We have to take that step back from being hand in glove with the defense. And so I, I, I heard what uh, Leader McConnell had said. Uh, I happen to think that that has further confused the process. Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, a moderate who has bucked her party on health care and Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, responding sharply to this. Everything I do during this, I'm coordinating with White House counsel. There will be no difference between the president's position and our position as to uh, how to handle this. Murkowski making clear she also has concerns with how House Democrats ran their impeachment probe. Speaker Pelosi was very clear, very direct, that her goal was uh, to, to get this done before Christmas. Yet underscoring the tenuous situation McConnell finds himself in with negotiations over what a Senate trial will look like at a standstill. We can't do anything until the Speaker sends the papers over, so... Everybody enjoy the holidays. Should McConnell lose four of his 53 Republican senators, he would lose control of the process, something Democratic sources tell CNN they are keenly aware of and have used to cultivate potential Republican allies in recent weeks. For Democrats who acknowledge there is little to no chance of pulling the votes together to remove President Trump, it's the trial itself that has become the battle. If it doesn't have documents and witnesses, it's going to seem to most of the American people that it is a sham trial, a show trial. Democratic leader Chuck Schumer continuing his push to subpoena four witnesses and reams of documents relevant to the allegations. McConnell has insisted any witnesses or document subpoenas be dealt with after the initial presentations, as was done in the impeachment trial for President Bill Clinton. We remain at an impasse on these logistics. All as House Democrats have yet to appoint impeachment managers or send the articles to the Senate at all. Speaker Nancy Pelosi, in a letter to colleagues this week, touting the impeachment vote as, quote, overwhelming and inspiring. And the number of people who want to be managers is indicative of our strong case. 
Now, Erica, who those managers will be, one of the opening question, open questions as we wait to see when and if the Speaker will actually send the articles of impeachment over. What I'm being told right now is twofold. One, don't expect Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to blink on what he wants, at least in the opening stages of the trial. And two, expect those articles of impeachment to come over pretty soon after lawmakers return to the Capitol sometime in January. When and what the actual details will be, well, we're going to have to wait and see on that, Erica. We're waiting on that, but I like pretty soon it's at least some, somewhat of a development. Bill, thank you. <laughs> Uh, taking a look at all of this, Brendan, as we uh, listen to those comments from Lisa Murkowski, what are the chances that we will see more Republicans come out and question perhaps how much McConnell is handling this? Yeah, I'm skeptical we're going to see a lot of that. This feels to me like when it was in the House and everybody was looking for cracks in the wall of the GOP and we ended up with zero Republican votes for it. Mitch McConnell has shown time and time again he has very strong control over the Senate floor, all of the operations, and has done a really good job keeping his, his senators in line. And I actually think that you know the, him working with the White House is more Mitch McConnell telling the White House how he's going to do things more than the White House telling him how it's going to work. But if, it's, if there's going to be any, any cracks, it's going to be maybe Elisa Murkowski, but probably those vulnerable senators who are up for election this time, I'm talking about Susan Collins in Maine or Cory Gardner in Colorado or Martha McSally in Arizona. Those, are, those senators uh, are in swing states. They're, uh, the only thing that Mitch McConnell cares really more about uh, than anything right now is keeping his Senate majority. And so if those three people come to him and say, I need witnesses, I need a better process than this, that's the only way I could see him blinking on this. Otherwise, he has no reason to. If only we could all be a fly on the wall for that conversation, <laughs> uh, if they actually happen. We should point out, of course, that Senator Murkowski was also critical of Nancy Pelosi, talking about House Democrats, talking about how the process was rushed in her mind, only to now sit around a little bit. And she also talked about the fact that they could have actually gone to the courts, Maeve, and chose not to. Right. And certainly, you know, that has been a Republican talking point uh, throughout this entire uh, process. But clearly, uh, Nancy Pelosi did not want to wait uh, and wanted to move this along so that they would potentially the House's piece of it would be done uh, by Christmas. And I do think, uh, to Brendan's point, that we're going to know a lot more about what McConnell will allow and what the structure of a trial will look like after some of these vulnerable senators have been at home talking mm -hmm. to their constituents and potentially, you know, hearing back from some of them that they they don't want to see, you know, a two second process where this flies by this this potentially huge historic moment. And I think there is, you know, some uh, some degree of risk for senators who appear to not be taking this seriously, uh, especially, I mean, this is, it's, it's unprecedented, uh, and it's something that, that they will have to explain to those moderates and those independents and other people um, as we go into the election year. You and know, Maria, to that point yeah. about talking with constituents mm -hmm. while they are home over this holiday break, uh, it's important that those constituents really represent um, all of those who they represent in terms of the conversations that are being had. Right. No, that's exactly right, Erica. But I think one of the things that you have seen from Democrats in the House that I think has surprised some people and has made, I think, Democrats really proud is that they are first and foremost voting their conscience and voting to uphold their oath of office. And yes, they are also representing the people that they promised to represent in a fair and equitable fashion. And look, in terms of the Senate, 
I agree with Brendan. I don't think that there's going to be a lot of senators that are going to be, you know, quote unquote, part of the crack in, in the red wall. But here's the problem with Mitch McConnell's situation. He doesn't need a lot. He needs just a handful. Certainly, there will not be 67, right? N enough to right. remove the president, at least we don't think at this point. Mm -hmm. But there can certainly be enough that will put a sort of um, kink in the plan for Mitch McConnell if he wanted to do this really quickly. To Maeve's point, if they come to him and say, look, we do need witnesses. We do need to see some more documents. I think that's a loss for McConnell and certainly for Trump, who has now wanted this to be really quick in order to get this out of the way. Mm. Ron, as we look at the other piece of this, uh, coming from the House in her dear colleague letter just before Christmas, Nancy Pelosi said members are clamoring to be House managers. But no one's really saying it on the record, and it sounds like these folks certainly aren't. Take a listen. I have no desire to be one of the managers. And that is not a job that I, as a freshman congresswoman, would want. I don't think that you fight firebrands with firebrands. Do you want to be one of those managers for the Senate trial? No, I don't. So, Ron, everyone seems to be yeah. clamoring. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, uh, it, it's asking a lot of a swing state, a uh, swing district member to want to be one of the uh, impeachment managers. I mean, you do have the 31 Democrats in districts that Trump carried. All but two of them ended up voting for impeachment and feel comfortable doing that, in part because not all of them believe that Trump is going to win their district again. But, you know, the, the history of asking them to kind of be the face of the impeachment, I think, is asking a lot. Don't forget that Adam Schiff is in Congress because, as Maeve knows, in 1998, he beat one of the impeachment, I guess in 2000, he beat one of the impeachment managers, Jim Rogan uh, of Pasadena. You know, to me, the question on the Senate is not only kind of the partisan question, but the institutional question, um, you know, Winston Churchill said where you stand depends on where you sit. So it's not going to be a surprise if whatever they think about the underlying evidence, all or virtually all Republicans say in the end that Donald Trump's actions did not justify removal from office. But it's another thing to say from an institutional perspective that you are going to, in, a, in effect, validate a strategy in which the White House has systematically right. blocked the testimony of key officials and the transfer of documents. The idea that the country would make a decision of this magnitude it's only the third time we've ever had a trial in the Senate without hearing from John Bolton or, or Mick Mulvaney and that Republicans in the Senate are going to say we're OK with that, with establishing that precedent for a future president. That still seems to me from an institutional perspective, pretty remarkable. I, I don't, I don't I disagree with that, but I, let's be clear what Mitch McConnell is, is saying. He is saying let's use the same precedent that we had in 1999. When hundred when senators voted but Brendan, 100 they had, to nothing, they had witnesses. But the, they had witnesses. At, at, they had at this stage, at this stage, all they did was pass a resolution setting the rules for managers to come over, and it was not until after that point that they passed a second resolution and, naming witnesses. And all he's saying right and, now and, is, and, let's and, hold off until that point, and then we'll re, we'll assess whether we need witnesses then. But and do you believe that he wait. would ultimately fulfill that precedent? I think, and, I think, and, and allow the witnesses to testify. I mean, or, or is he okay with the thought that we would go through this entire episode and never hear under oath from John Bolton? I think the answer is he'd probably be perfectly fine. I with think that. he wouldn't. I think he's made clear that, that he's fine with that. But ultimately, it will come down to whether fifty-one senators agree with that. And so he, all he's saying is, let's get past this first point, and then fifty-one senators are going to decide whether we need more. Here's the problem with that: it's a very <laughs> different situation than we had in '98. And what Lisa Murkowski said after all the criticism that she took when she said that she was disturbed by McConnell's statements, which she should be, then is if I want to be seen, if people see me as somebody who's open minded and wants to see things fairly, I'm OK with that. More senators should feel the way she does.
Okay, we're going to leave that there for the moment, but don't worry. This is a topic that we'll keep on giving uh, as we move in here. President Trump blasting Speaker Pelosi, as we mentioned, just after that Christmas call for unity and respect, and admitting he's actually worried about one consequence from impeachment. Plus, the so-called Christmas gift the world has been waiting for, undelivered so far. But just what is North Korea planning? In our politics lead, President Trump today drowning out his message of holiday unity with a deluge of impeachment complaints and attacks, but also one admission that he sees impeachment as hurting his relationships with world leaders. As CNN's Pamela Brown reports from the White House, even a sunny vacation can't distract the president from his troubles at home. Today, President Trump shedding the short-lived Christmas spirit by attacking Democrats and calling his impeachment unfair. Tweeting, the radical left do-nothing Democrats said they wanted to rush everything through to the Senate because President Trump is a threat to national security. They are vicious, will say anything, but now they don't want to go fast anymore. They want to go very slowly. Liars. The president specifically targeting House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, labeling her San Francisco district, quote, filthy dirty and smearing her as crazy. Trump tweeting, now Pelosi is demanding everything the Republicans weren't allowed to have in the House. Dems want to run majority Republican Senate. Hypocrites. We wish everyone a joyous and Merry Christmas. The Twitter tirade in stark contrast to the unifying message Trump delivered on Christmas, saying in a statement, while the challenges that face our country are great, the bonds that unite us as Americans are much stronger. Together, we must strive to foster a culture of deeper understanding and respect, traits that exemplify the teachings of Christ. But even on Christmas Eve, Trump launched a baseless attack against Speaker Pelosi when he did a video conference with U.S. troops. She hates the Republican Party. She hates all of the people that voted for me and the Republican Party. And she's desperate to do. With impeachment on the president's mind, later that night, Trump was spotted talking with attorney Alan Dershowitz, who is in discussions to join Trump's defense for the Senate impeachment trial. Dershowitz has stated publicly he has offered Trump legal advice. The advice I've given the president in public on television and in my op-eds is to go for a very short constitutional defense focusing on the inadequacies of the mm-hmm. two uh, charges. Also on Christmas Eve, the Trump campaign launching this new website designed to help Trump supporters win arguments with their liberal relatives, giving talking points on a number of topical issues. And a source close to the president's legal team says there continues to be serious discussions about Alan Dershowitz, as well as some of the president's GOP allies joining his defense team in the Senate trial. But given how fluid everything is in terms of the timing of when it will start, the source says the only thing for certain right now is that the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, will lead uh, the defense in the Senate trial. He'll have several deputies helping him and the president's personal counsel will be playing a role as well. Back to you, Erica. Very interesting. All right, Pamela, live at the White House for us. Thank you. Uh, As we look at all of this in the president's tweets, the president continued to complain on Twitter today that the process has been, quote, very unfair with no due process, proper representation or witnesses. Of course, in reality, the president chose not to participate, blocked both witnesses and evidence, uh, Brennan. But the false talking point is clearly one that the president is sticking with. 
Yeah, and, and the president is actually saying both things. He wants a, a, a fast trial or there's not enough time. It, <laughs> it, it feels, the president is a lot like a parrot. Like he sits in front of Fox and Friends and repeats whatever the <laughs> argument that was made, whether it's, uh, as long as it is in his, in his favor, he'll repeat it and he says it. So it's not surprising that he's doing this. I, I think what's, what's most amusing is how Nancy Pelosi is so clearly in his head, though. Mm -hmm. Totally. Every, you know, it, it was so obvious early on that he really liked Nancy Pelosi, and he thought genuinely that he was going to be able to work with her. And I think he, somehow he is now surprised that she is leading this impeachment, and it really gets under his skin and drives him nuts. So it's not surprising that he's doing it again when it, targeting her specifically. Uh, he also quoted a supporter who said Republicans should support a motion to dismiss the case, not have an impeachment trial. But, Ron, there's this whole pesky thing called the Constitution that actually comes <laughs> yeah, into play. There's that. Well, there's that. And, and look, and there's also the reality, as we talked about in, in the first segment, that there are a number of Republican senators who, while in the end, are unlikely to you know, vote to remove President Trump from office. They don't want to go home and say they did not take this seriously. I mean, you're talking about, you know, when Bill Clinton was impeached, there was no more than a third, 35 percent of the country that ever said remove him from office. We're at half the country now consistently. It never got that high under Nixon until the very last poll. I mean, we are, you know, the country is closely divided on this. But the fact that we are closely divided yeah. on a step so unprecedented as, a, as removing a president from office is just an indication that there is an awful lot of, uh, you know, a, win, a tailwind behind that notion. And I don't think those senators can go home and simply say, we just brushed this off. Martha McSally has come close yeah. to doing that, which is quite a statement in Arizona. But for Cory Gardner, uh, Susan Collins, uh, even in North Carolina or Iowa, that is a risky bet to just kind of brush mm -hmm. it aside. Uh, the other thing that's interesting that's coming out just in some reporting this afternoon uh, from Josh Rogan at The Washington Post is is that there could be a change afloat at the State Department. Now, there's been a lot of speculation, of course, about mm. Mike Pompeo. Will he run for Senate? What will he do? Uh, Mitch McConnell, of course, uh, perhaps wanting to see him run for Senate to protect uh, that seat. But as we look at this and the possibilities being floated about who could replace Secretary Pompeo, Maeve, it is interesting timing to say the least. Certainly. And I think that, you know, it's, it's not particularly a good thing uh, for President Trump in the sense that uh, one of the issues that that moderates and independents bring up all the time is this constant churn and turnover and sense of sort of uncertainty and the feeling that there are so many empty desks uh, in the executive branch and in the White House. People do have real concern about that, and it makes them question the president's judgment. So I think if we were, you know, to to have that kind of uh, a change up, even if it's something that that Mike Pompeo wants, uh, that you do remind people of sort of the constant level of disruption within this administration, Erica. Maria, there's also the question of, because the president also complaining that impeachment is making it hard for him <laughs> when it comes to dealing with foreign leaders. That being said, as we're looking at all of this, could the president benefit from a new secretary of state in any way to maybe help him Ooh. move forward post-impeachment trial, Maria? I doubt it, because everything we've said from the very beginning since this president was elected is, oh, look, you know, he's got some adults around him. They'll be able to check him. They'll be able to moderate him. We all know that that is now not true. There is no moderating this president, no matter who his cabinet is, no matter what advisors are around him. And I think to Maeve's point, to go a little bit deeper on that, you know, the reason why he's losing independence and the reason why he's losing women, and we know that there's a record gender gap, and I think we might talk right. about that a little bit later on, is because of the chaotic nature of his presidency. 
every single day there are not one, not two, not three, but like 53 things that are chaotic. And I just think people are sick of it. This will add to that chaos, which will be very hurtful to Trump going into 2020. Yeah, I think the president has plenty of reasons to have trouble with world leaders beyond the impeachment, whether it's <laughs> the climate Paris agreement, the tariffs or, yeah. you know, attacks on NATO. I don't think that's his problem. But this impeachment is a, re- is is a really not bad it. time to not have a secretary of state. And there are a lot of dangerous situations going on in the world, and it would be a mm-hmm. very difficult time to get someone uh, confirmed quickly. Confirmed. His biggest exactly. problem is that um, we're going to have to leave it there, but don't worry. There's more to come. The new information warfare tactics. The U.S. military is now reportedly developing to head off Russian aggression. Could Putin be one of the targets? U.S. military officials are developing new information warfare systems that could target Russian officials and oligarchs if Russia interferes in the 2020 presidential elections. That's according to a new report in The Washington Post. I want to bring in CNN national security reporter Kylie Atwood and Nina Jankowitz of the Wilson Center, who's written extensively on Russian disinformation campaigns and is also working on a new book titled How to Lose the Information War. Kylie, first, give us a sense what are we looking at here? What is the U.S. military considering in terms of options to deter Russia? Yeah, so the Washington Post is reporting that the arm of the Pentagon that works on cyber operations is develop, developing capabilities that could go after Russian senior officials and Russian elites, Russian oligarchs with cyber tools. So essentially targeting in a very specific way their personal data. Now that is something that they can do because they have been working on this for years now, and they could do it in a very targeted way. That is what the Washington Post is writing. Now, the Pentagon is not confirming or denying this report, essentially saying that, yes, Cyber Command does, in fact, help DHS and helps the FBI on operations, and also said that, quote, when authorized, it's taking action to disrupt or degrade malicious nation-state cyber actors' ability to interfere in U.S. elections. So, yes, they are preventing uh, outside actors from getting involved in U.S. elections, but not commenting on the specific nature of what The Washington Post has revealed in their reporting. Perhaps not surprisable, right, in terms of it, not surprising, rather, in, time, in terms of a statement. But Nina, you know, as Kylie pointed out, this is something they've been working on for some time. Just put it to perspective for us, how sophisticated would an operation like that be? Well, make no mistake, Erica, the United States is one of the foremost cyber operators in the world. Uh, I think this is not beyond our capability, nor is it particularly uh, something we should be surprised that is in our toolkit. I think what's important to note is that the United States has been reticent to take steps like this because the issue of Russian information warfare and the response to it has become so politicized over the past couple of years. And what is worrisome to me is that we're only taking these steps in relation to elections. You know, we took similar steps shutting down the the Internet Research Agency, the IRA, out of St. Petersburg, that infamous troll factory in 2016 during the midterms. Uh, But but these are operations that are going on all the time. Uh, And in fact, the infrastructure for them is is seeded and developed in inter-election periods. So for three years, we've been sitting around kind of twiddling our thumbs, taking very few steps. Um, And now just, you know, within a year of the 2020 election, we're finally starting to get our game together. Which doesn't instill a ton of confidence, uh, it must be said. Kylie, as we look at this, would Vladimir Putin be a target? 
Well, according to the reporting from the Post, that would be a little bit too provocative. He is not on the table for someone that they are considering targeting. Now, if there, of course, things could change, uh, given any intelligence that they are able to collect about meddling in the 2020 elections, which is something that U.S. intelligence officials have said that Russia wants to do. And, and, you know, what would the response be, would you imagine, from Russia? I don't think this will change Russia's response in the slightest because, you know what, we've got a huge uh, disparity in the messaging that's coming from the White House and actions like this that our national security uh, administration is taking in the United States. We've got President Trump uh, wondering if Russian influence and information warfare is even a thing. And then on the other hand, we've got these responses coming from the Department of Defense. So I don't think Russia's going to be convinced by the fact that we're taking Mm -hmm. this action. Nina Jankovic, Kylie Atwood, thank you both. Thank you. American and South Korean troops are on high alert after North Korea threatened to deliver a Christmas gift. A threat deemed serious enough, the U.S. military is reportedly flying spy missions over the Korean peninsula. CNN's Paula Hancox is in Seoul, South Korea. And Paula, I know sources tell the U.S., tell CNN rather, the U.S. is closely watching North Korea for a possible provocation. Has there been any hint of activity at this point? And, and what would it even look like? Well, Erica, U.S. officials are quite puzzled at this point as to why there hasn't been some kind of test from North Korea. The the Trump administration officials widely anticipated and expected that this Christmas gift would be some kind of weapons test. And many officials and experts here in South Korea agreed with that. Now, we do understand that there are intelligence indicators that show that some weapons components have been moved. We know that there are uh, open source satellite imagery showing that there has been activity at two of the key sites when it comes to the missile program program in North Korea. Now, one source with knowledge of North Korean thinking says that they believe that some provocative test, like a nuclear test or an ICBM launch over the Christmas period, uh, would be unlikely. But uh, we are also uh, expecting and hearing from US officials that the window's not closed. They're expecting this window to be open potentially through early January, which is uh, Kim Jong-un's birthday as well. And of course, there is that year-end deadline that North Korea has given the US uh, also. Now, a U.S. official tells CNN that there have been some contingency plans put in place, that there have been uh, some potential military show of force options uh, that could be executed quickly if there is a provocative test by North Korea, a flyover of bombers over the peninsula, for example, or even a a ground force military drill, a ground weapons military drill uh, that could be executed. Of course, we don't know what the red line is or what that threshold is, though. Erica. Paula Hancock's live for us in Seoul. Thank you. The polls suggesting we could see a new record in the 2020 election. That's next. With a little more than a month until the first votes are cast, some polls suggest there could be a gender, a record gender gap at the ballot box. In 2016, women overwhelmingly voted for Hillary Clinton as men supported Donald Trump. But CNN's Harry Enten found the split could be even larger next year. I averaged our last two polls, CNN polls, October and December, and take a look at this. I'm specifically looking at the Biden and Trump to simplify things a little bit. And take a look here. So women in an average of our two polls voting Democratic, voting for Joe Biden by 24 percentage points, Republicans voting for Trump by 10 percentage points. That's a gender gap of 34 points. That is huge. I have never, ever seen that in any polling ever. Uh, It is quite the gap as we look at it. Maria, is there a danger in Democrats, though, perhaps feeling content with numbers like that? 
and being complacent, which we saw some of in 2016. Mm. Uh, Of course there is, Erica, and we cannot become complacent. We have to be running as if we are losing all voter groups. And that way we will make sure to do everything that we can to mobilize not just women, but everyone out there who is sick of having Trump as the chaotic president, as I mentioned earlier. But I think another thing to note, Erica, is among this gender gap, and a reason why it could be even worse, is because Hispanic women are also now more apt to vote for the Democratic nominee next year than our Hispanic men. But even overall, Hispanics are more apt to vote for the Democratic nominee. And Hispanics are poised to become the biggest ethnic minority voting bloc uh, in 2020. So overall, it is a huge danger for Trump, but Democrats cannot take it for granted. And Erica, I'm sorry, if I could just make it to to Maria's point, uh, what I think we also have to remember about 2018 uh, is that in, in all of the swing states that I went to in those hot midterm races, you saw pairs of mothers and daughters mm-hmm. out canvassing who had, had not been part of the process before. Many of those younger uh, female voters uh, told me that they regretted not turning out in 2016 because they just didn't think that there was going to be a big difference in who mm-hmm. they ended up with or mm-hmm. because they weren't they didn't particularly like Hillary Clinton. And I think that a lot of women have learned that lesson from 2016, and they were more energized in 2018, as we saw, than in a very long time in midterm elections. And there's also the focus on... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, there are important gradations in all of this, in the gender story, because even though Hillary Clinton did carry most women in 2016, the principal reason Donald Trump is president is because so many non-college white women in the key states voted for him over the first female nominee. By every data source, he won those non-college white women by at least 20 points in 2016. So there, there are different pieces of this. Without doubt, mm-hmm. college-educated white mo- women are moving away from Democrat, from moving away from Republicans at the highest levels we've ever seen in 2018. We'll probably see a record on that in 2020. There's a huge gender gap, as Maria was saying, among Hispanics and African Americans. But that is in part because because Trump may have a sliver of an audience among minority men, both because of his style and also the economy. To me, the key in these gender politics remain those blue-collar white women who are a big share of the vote in those key Midwestern states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. There are signs that they are recoiling from Trump, not only because of his style, but also because of health care. And the House vote mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago on but- reducing prescription drug prices may be even more important than impeachment in 2020. But that really, I think, is going to be the crucible, whether Democrats Democrats can make enough gains among those women to help tip those states that decided the 2016 election. There is also, putting aside gender for a moment, there's the issue of moderates in the moderate lane. And there's been so much made, obviously, about Joe Biden versus Pete Buttigieg with a little Amy Klobuchar thrown in for good measure, too, especially over the last couple of weeks. But there's a story in The New York Times that actually focuses on the moderate appeal of Joe Biden. And some of what stood out to me is this is a 27-year-old voter, Bailey Smith, who tells the paper, I think he could get the independents and moderate Republicans Mm. who refuse to vote for Donald Trump. And when asked if she had any of those Republicans in mind, the answer was my dad. (laughs) How realistic is it, Brendan, at this point that you are going to see more of these voters like Bailey's dad out there who shy away from Donald Trump, but like the idea of a more moderate Joe Biden. Yeah, let me say a few things. One, our, the middle has never been smaller in our politics. Tribalism has taken over everything. And the number of never-Trumpers, so-called, is actually, I think, vanishingly small, uh, a vanishingly small population of, of the GOP. That said, 
the choice matters. And if there is a choice between, say, Elizabeth Warren and Donald Trump versus a Joe Biden and Donald Trump, I think that actually is enough potentially to swing the election. There are, again, I don't think there are a ton of those Republicans who are willing to vote for a Democrat, but there may just be enough, given that this election is likely going to turn on a number, on maybe three or four states, and maybe just in, you know, surrounding the suburbs of Detroit or Milwaukee or Philadelphia. It's a really small area that could swing this entire election, and candidates matter. And if it is Elizabeth Warren, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a real chance uh, that, that she could lose where I think Joe Biden actually has a centrist message that could appeal to some relatively moderate or just even if you're not a moderate Republican, you're a conservative Republican who is just turned off by what this president does and the way he acts and talks. Well, on the heels of this conversation, we're going to take a look at a Democratic stronghold, which may actually have a little bit of room for change. How one Mexican-American is actually trying to shore up support for President Trump all along the border. you can fill these people in. President Trump launched his 2016 campaign with an attack on immigrants from Mexico, saying Mexico isn't sending their best and infamously calling Mexicans rapists. Gidecina's Nick Valencia reports one group of Hispanics near the border not only insists he is the candidate that's most in line with their values, they're also campaigning hard for his reelection. Are you a member of Border Hispanics yet? No, I'm not. Ray Baca has his work cut out for him. As the chair of the Border Hispanics for Trump, living in the Democratic stronghold of El Paso, his goal is to get Latinos to help reelect the president. But the odds are against him. I'm with Border Hispanics for Trump. How are you? Have you heard of us? As the 65-year-old sees it, there are countless Latinos who support the president, but are afraid to admit it. He hopes to convince them that their values are more in line with the GOP and with Trump. I look at President Trump as the one who most closely represents my values. People will hear that and say, values, you know, what values does the president have? So when you say that, what do you mean? I mean supporting things that I support, like uh, being against abortion, uh, being for limited government involvement, being for border security. Indeed, support for Trump in Texas among Latinos has remained steady at 30 percent, according to a recent CNN poll. The unwavering support comes in the face of criticism over the president's rhetoric on the Latino community, which his critics at best see as offensive and at worst racist. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. How can you still support somebody who they see as saying racist things against the Latino community. I disagree. I, I really don't think he said things that are racist. In August, 22 people were killed in a racist attack targeting Latinos at an El Paso Walmart. Baca says anyone who blames Trump because of his rhetoric and border policies is trying to make political hay of the shooting. I just don't think you can hold a president, or President Trump in particular, responsible for the actions of a single madman. Baca agrees with the president on most things, but not everything. Mainly, though he supports the idea of a wall, he questions the practicality of building one across the entire U.S.-Mexico border, a signature issue for Trump and his base. I see him with his faults, you know, I see him warts and all. I don't want to spend, you know, $200 billion on a wall if you can do it for $50 million and solve the problem. I'm Ray Baca. Yes, I remember you, Ray. Well, good to see you, good to see you. Tonight, Baca's pitch for Trump comes at an impromptu gathering of conservatives. But even in a friendly crowd, it can be a hard sell. I'll think about it. I'll think about okay. it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Can't win them all. But there are already some unlikely voters he doesn't have to win over. President Trump was the first president that you voted for. Yes. Originally from Mexico, 29-year-old Blanca Binkley became a U.S. citizen just five years ago. 
She plans on voting for Trump again in 2020. Oftentimes when I'm asked, but why, you know, or like I feel like someone's going to throw eggs at me or I'm going to be shunned from the Hispanic community, you know. Shunned by some, perhaps, but that's what Ray Baca and Trump are counting on. We need to get our Hispanic brethren to quit voting Democrat simply because that's what they've always voted. Nick Valencia, CNN, El Paso, Texas. Benjamin Netanyahu abruptly escorted off stage by security as the Israeli leader campaigned for a critical election happening now. We are live in Jerusalem next. The first result of a critical election expected in just moments. Israel's prime minister is facing a challenge to his leadership today, all while he's battling corruption charges. And that's not the only way Netanyahu is doing his best impression of his friend, President Trump. CNN's Oren Lieberman is live for us in Jerusalem. We're having a little trouble with Oren's uh, microphone, so we're going to try to get to him in a moment. But again, we'll be following that vote uh, as we wait to see what happens. Uh, We may have Oren with us now. Oren, can you hear me? All right, we'll work to get Oren back in just a moment. As we do that, a reminder, as we near the end of 2019, be sure to tune in Tuesday night to Ring in the New Year with Anderson Cooper and Andy Cohen. They will be live from Times Square. The party starts at 8 p.m. Eastern right here on CNN. So be sure to join us for that. Of course, you can follow the show on Twitter at any time. Be sure to tweet at the lead CNN and stay tuned as our coverage on CNN continues right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.